Well, good morning. Good to see you. If you have a Bible with you, please turn to the book of Nehemiah. If you don't have a Bible or you forgot yours, you can slip a hand in the air and one of our ushers will bring one to you. Uh, We're in the book of Nehemiah. I'm preaching through the book of Nehemiah. Um, That's what we typically do here at this church is we preach through different books of the Bible. And we do take a little time on Sunday morning to preach through uh, different books because um, this is the Word of God to us. This, This is how we know God. This is how we know about Jesus whom God has sent. Uh, I spent a lot of time in my early Christian life going to services, but I didn't at all know this right here. Uh, and I was very thankful when the Lord took me into the Word and began to teach me the Word. So uh, we do take some time on Sunday mornings just to preach through different books of the Bible, hopefully to learn different books of the Bible. We're now in, in about the middle of the book of Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah chapter 5. We're going to read the, uh, the entire chapter here this morning. Uh, let's pray as we begin. Father, we thank you for uh, an opportunity to gather together. We thank you, Lord, for an opportunity to look into your word. We do believe, Father, that uh, this word teaches us about Jesus. Uh, he is uh, the only solid rock upon, our, upon which our feet may stand. Uh, Father, your word says that we are all sinners who deserve your wrath because of our sin. And yet, Father, in your love, in your mercy, you sent your son, Jesus. He lived and, and it lived the perfect life we failed to live. He then died upon the cross, carrying the punishment for our sins, and then rose again from the dead, uh, conquering those sins, conquering death. And Father, your word says now that everyone who turns from sin and trusts in Jesus and follows Jesus is forgiven of sin and has eternal life. And that's the reason we're here today. We believe, Father, that our hope is in Christ. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you for an opportunity now to look into your word and learn more about Jesus. I pray, Father, you'd help us as we do look into your word. Help us to concentrate. Help us to focus. I pray that you would drive distractions out of this room, Father, and you would feed us this morning uh, through your word. We thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, amen. Uh, Before we read, let me just quickly catch you up to speed with where we are here in the book of Nehemiah. A hundred and fifty years or so before Nehemiah was born, the Jewish people who were living there in Israel, they were taken into exile by the Babylonians, uh, who kind of came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, took them into exile. But seventy years after they had been in exile, uh, the king of Persia, Cyrus, wrote a, a decree that the people of Israel could then return to Jerusalem. And here in this book, Nehemiah has led the third and final wave of exiles back to Jerusalem. And in this book so far, Nehemiah and those other exiles who are now back in Jerusalem, they're working to rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem, which were devastated by the Babylonians. The walls are now about halfway up, so they're about 10 feet high or so. 
the breaks in the wall are now beginning to be, to be closed. closed. And, and as these people have built here in this book, they, they have faced some serious opposition. Uh, some, some local enemies there around Jerusalem who did not want Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And they have been uh, opposing the rebuilding of these walls. But the builders so far have withstood that opposition. They've stood against it. A combination of building and also defending the city. A combination of tools and weapons. And they've been looking to God throughout. And they've been able to stand against the opposition. The people of Israel, they're, they're continuing to build the walls. But, but now here in this chapter, the people there in Jerusalem, they, they face a very different type of opposition. They don't face here another external threat against this building project. Now they face an internal threat, something within the people of God, uh, something that could kill this building project and make them walk away from these walls. Let's go ahead and, and read it now. Verse 1, Nehemiah 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards." I was very angry, Nehemiah says, when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. And they were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, 
from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. Amen. I know there is a lot there. We won't hit it all in detail this morning. We'll gloss over parts, but there's a lot to be seen there that's really helpful. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with uh, a comic strip named Pogo. Uh, Pogo Possum, uh, Albert the Alligator, uh, Porky Pine. And, And on April 22nd of 1970... Pogo said a line in that comic strip that quickly became famous, and that line has since been used by many people around the world. Pogo said in that comic strip, we have met the enemy, and he is us. And that line, it actually came from an earlier quote by an American Navy officer, Uh, Oliver Hazard Perry, who in 1813, while he and his crew were defeating a a British naval squadron on Lake Erie, well, he bragged to another officer, we have met the enemy and they are ours. (laughs) And Pogo, that comic strip, kind of changed the saying around to be, we have met the enemy and he is ours. Us And it is a great line because on many occasions in this life, we are truly our worst enemies. We have met the enemy and he is often us. And that was the case here with the Jews. You know, in building this wall around Jerusalem, these Jews, man, they have faced tons of opposition. But 99% of that opposition up to this point, it has come from the outside of Jerusalem. It has come from external threats, from people out there. But all of a sudden here in this passage, it's no longer an external threat to this building project. Now it is an internal threat to this building project. There's an internal strife within the people of Israel. There's a discord within the people, a disunity within the people. And the division here within the people of God is threatening to stop the building project here, these walls around Jerusalem. J.I. Packer, he says that up to this point in the book, we have seen this community of people rallying under pressure from without, but now we see the same community coming apart at the seams 
falling apart from the inside out and the walls are now at risk because of the internal threat. We have met the enemy and he is us. And man, that's the way things often go in the church today with the followers of Christ. You know, God has called us to build something too. God has called us as his followers to build the church of Jesus. God has called us to make disciples and build the church. God has called us to expand the church, bringing more unbelievers to faith in Christ. And God has called us to strengthen the church, bringing other believers to maturity in Christ. We, like these people back then, we also have a building project here today. And man, as we, the church, as we actively seek to make disciples and build the church, we might face opposition from the outside. External threats, maybe people who, who, who would persecute, who don't like Christians, don't want us to build the church. But do you realize that some of the most deadly threats that we will face, some of the deadliest threats that we will face as we seek to build the church. They are not external threats. They are internal threats. They are threats within the people of God. Division within the people of God. Strife within the people of God. Hatred within the people of God that threatens to rip the body of Christ apart and, 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 and stop us from building the church of Jesus. The internal threats are deadly. The people of God here in this passage, they have an internal threat, an internal strife, and Nehemiah in this passage here, he shows us, among other things, how to handle internal threats. You look at this chapter here, it really, it breaks up pretty neatly into three different parts. First, there, there are the complaints that Nehemiah hears. And second, there are the steps that Nehemiah then takes. And third, there's the example that Nehemiah set. So we'll look here first at the complaints that Nehemiah heard. Verse 1 there, if you look at it again, verse 1 says that there was now this outcry among the Jewish people. There was a protest of sorts within Jerusalem. And, and verse 1 also says that this, this outcry from the people, it was a cry against their Jewish brothers. It was a cry against their own people. Jew crying out against Jew here in this passage. Nehemiah mentions three different groups here that raised complaints. The first group that complained, if you look at verse 2, for there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many here in this city of Jerusalem, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. Uh, Jewish families back then, they were very large, uh, lots of sons and daughters, lots of little kiddos running around, and apparently some of those families here, during this building project, they were not getting enough food to eat. The people, they were occupied with building these walls. The, the fathers were out on the walls. Many of the sons and even some of the daughters were out on the walls. And they weren't getting paid to build those walls. So they're not getting money to buy food for all those hours of labor on the walls. And they don't have time to go work in their fields to get food. Uh, 
um, during this time. And we learn later in this passage that there was also a famine. So there's not very much food anyways around these parts. And and it seems like many of the families now uh, were beginning to suffer uh, from Hunger, not enough food on the table. Those of you who have kids, you know how miserable (laughs) that can get when your children get hungry. Uh, Little kids, they don't just get hungry, (laughs) do they? They get hangry. Uh, It's it's a nasty mixture of hunger and anger or a mixture of hunger and insanity in your home. (laughs) And you know what it's like to have hangry kids. And it seems like that was going on here. And and uh, it seems that the people who raised this first complaint about the food, it seems that it might have been the mothers. Uh, in verse 1, Nehemiah says that the wives were some of those who protested right here. And I think this is probably the first complaint coming from the mamas, uh, the homemakers. Uh, the husbands are out on the walls right now. They don't know what's going on back home. The mothers are around managing the children. They know the kids are hangry and the mamas begin to protest here. Man, listen, you mess with baby cubs long enough uh, and you will eventually get mama bear, won't you? (laughs) She will rise up. Man, that happened in my own home. When I was growing up, I swear, I thought my mother was the sweetest, kindest, uh, gentlest woman on the planet. But if you mess with her kids enough, man, you mess with me and my older brother and my, my younger sister, you would get mama bear. And my brother and sister and I, we would stand back and just marvel at how bold my mother could get when people were messing with her cubs. And I think right here, the mamas feel that somebody's messing with their cubs. Maybe it's Nehemiah. Maybe it's some other people in Israel. They don't know, but they're protesting. Angry here that their families are not eating. The second group to protest here now in this initial outcry, these complaints, if you look at verse 3, there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, mortgaging our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of this famine. So, so some of the Jews now in, in Jerusalem, while they're building these walls here, they're actually going into debt and, and mortgaging their property. They're essentially giving, uh, some of the poorer Jews here are essentially giving over ownership to wealthier Jews in order, for, in order um, to get loans. Uh, from those wealthier Jews, mortgaging their properties. And the Old Testament law at this time, it did actually permit that. If you ran into hard times as a Jew, you could mortgage your property. You, you could give ownership to another Jew in exchange for a loan. And you would then make payments to get your property back. And if you weren't able to make pro- payments, you couldn't get your property back, well, that debt would eventually be forgiven anyway, anyways in the year of Jubilee, every 50th year. So you would ultimately get your property back. So when you look at this mortgaging of property going on here in this chapter, it wasn't necessarily wrong for people to be mortgaging their property and, and for Jews to be giving loans to other Jews. The problem here is that they were charging interest on their loans. 
And historical records indicate that it was a high interest. Verse 10, Nehemiah blasts them saying, you are exacting interest from your own people. And taking interest from another Jew, if you were a Jew, that was a direct violation of God's law. Deuteronomy 23, 19. Jake, do you have that? Do you have Deuteronomy 23, 19? says this, here's Old Testament law, you shall not charge interest on your loans to your brother. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You, you may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest and so on. So <laughs> you could not charge, as a Jew, you could not charge another Jew interest. And they were here. During this time, building these walls, an exorbitant interest, the wealthy here charging the poor with an exorbitant interest, exploiting, oppressing the poor, Jew exploiting Jew. Uh, Back in the Revolutionary War, uh, American soldiers in the winter of 1777, the soldiers suffered terribly because of inadequate apparel. They didn't have the right kind of clothes. They they didn't have enough blankets. The clothes were very tattered. The blankets were so rare that the soldiers would often try to stay up all night rather than risk freezing to death. When the French general Lafayette came and surveyed the troops, uh, he found men whose legs were black and in need of amputation. And, And the soldiers there were suffering with inadequate apparel because the merchants in Boston were refusing to sell the apparel to the army unless they received profits of at least 1,000%. This is an outrageous markup. (laughs) You thought Nordstrom's was bad. They were getting a 1,000 to 1,800% markup on the clothes that they were selling to the soldiers. Americans exploiting Americans. Just getting rich off of this situation. And in this passage here, we have Jews exploiting Jews. The rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer, uh, the rich getting rich um, at the expense of the poor. The third group to protest here in this first part with the complaints, if you look at verse 4, and Nehemiah says there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. And you can just see the debt cycle here. All that's going on. So now, it wasn't just that the poor here had to borrow money from the rich for food, but they also had to borrow money from the rich in order to pay taxes back to the king of Persia. Uh, Persia still controlled Jerusalem at this time, was taxing Jerusalem heavily, uh, the Persian IRS, and the poor are now mortgaging all of their stuff to get money for food and also money to pay these taxes. And listen, the situation was becoming so bad in Jerusalem at this point, so bad right now, that some of the poorer Jews were actually selling their children into slavery to the wealthier Jews. If you look at verse 5, 
These people, they keep crying out. They cry out here. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. So they're at the point where they're selling their children into slavery to survive. And they're selling their children into slavery to other Jews. Now, the Old Testament law at this time, uh, it permitted Jews to hire themselves or to hire their children out as servants uh, uh, to make money. But as servants, when they would hire their, their children out or hire themselves out as servants, they were still free to come and go. They could go see their, their, their families. Uh, it was a form of employment. But here in this chapter, uh, these children were being sold as slaves. Once again, a direct violation of God's law. Leviticus 25.39, Jake, says this. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner, as a foreigner. He shall serve with you until the year of jubilee but they weren't hiring them out as servants here they were selling them into slavery here the poor selling their children to slavery to the wealthy so you just catch the picture of what's going on here tons of exploitation here the powerful jews exploiting the weak charging interest enslaving their children loan sharks basically in jerusalem pawnbrokers here, cutthroat business ethics, manipulating for personal gain, greed, self-indulgence in Jerusalem. And it resulted here in this internal strife within the people of God. Division, disunity, tensions rising, an outcry here now in Jerusalem. And many of the people now, they, they, they want to stop building. They don't want to continue on the walls. They want to find a way to get food. They don't want to build anymore. And you know, when you step back from the situation and you look at what was really going on here in Jerusalem at the time, and if you just boil this thing down to just a couple of words, what was the very basic foundational issue here? No love. No love. A serious lack of love within the people of God. God commanded in His law that His people love one another. God God said in Leviticus 19.18, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He commanded that His people love one another. You you shall love your neighbor the way you would love yourself. Love your neighbor the way you would want to be treated. It's what God wanted from His people. But these people here, they were not loving their neighbors. They were fleecing them for personal gain. One commentator, he says that this was an egregious failure to love and care for one's neighbor. And listen, this lack of love here among the people of God, it was seriously threatening 
the building of these walls. These people now want to quit. They're being exploited. They have no food. Their children are being enslaved. And they want to drop their tools and walk away from these walls. This is not an external threat to the building project here. This is an internal threat. An internal strife or division or disunity among the people threatening the building project. And the same thing can happen to God's people today. We also, listen, we also have a building project. God has called us to make disciples and build His church. God has called us to expand and strengthen His church. And some of the worst threats to our building project, they will not be external threats, they will be internal threats. And you just picture it. We're, we're, we're actively working as a church. We're working together with one another to, to make disciples. We're, we're working in our, in our life groups to, to make disciples of our spouses and, and, and of our kids and, and of our neighbors. We're, we're actively working together to do this, to, to build the church. And all of a sudden, a little lack of love between believers. And listen, that that lack of love can take a million different forms. Maybe it is some form of exploitation within the body, like here. Maybe it's the powerful in our church family somehow exploiting, or, or maybe just neglecting the weaker in our church family. Or maybe that lack of love, it's just one person grumbling against another person. Maybe it's just one person criticizing another person, complaining against another person. Maybe it's one person in the body giving another person a cold shoulder. Gossip in the body, slander in the body, unforgiveness or bitterness. And and over time it grows and it festers. And listen, anytime there's sin in the body, it doesn't just affect you. It affects the people around you. Jonah was sitting in the boat and it didn't just affect him. It affected everyone in the boat. And sin in the body over time, it will eventually spread and affect other people. Boil to the surface over time as a full-blown division, the body coming apart at the seams. It is a simple and yet deadly lack of love. And when that happens, that lack of love begins to spread in the body. It kills the building project. And all of a sudden you have a church that's no longer concerned to build the church. A church that's no longer concerned to make disciples of one another or to make disciples of unbelievers. No, all of a sudden you have a church that's just mad. Just irritated at one another. Just miffed, hurt, offended. Chip on your shoulder. Complaining, sulking. It's just a basic lack of love within the body. And it seems so simple. And yet it is a serious threat to what God has called us to do. We have met the enemy and he is us. Our worst enemy at times when it comes to making disciples and building the church is us. And listen, when that takes place in a church, the powers of darkness love it. You know, it's Satan. He doesn't want us to build the church of Jesus. He doesn't want us to make disciples of one another and of other people. He doesn't want us to do it. 
But to keep us from doing it, he doesn't just have to stir up external persecution. No, all he has to do is stir up a little bit of internal dissension. And when that happens, all of a sudden people end up dropping their tools and walk away. And they stop building. That lack of love in a body, when it is unchecked and it is unaddressed, it can kill everything. So that's the first thing here, the complaints Nehemiah heard. The second thing here, the steps that Nehemiah then took. Nehemiah, man, he hears about this lack of love in the people of God within the city of Jerusalem. And man, Nehemiah then, he quickly and rather sharply addresses it. You look at verse 6. Nehemiah says, I was very angry. When I heard their outcry in these words, I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. Just pause there. Nehemiah sees this lack of love in his body, the people of God, and he says, I was very angry. And in the Hebrew language there, it could, it could literally be translated, it burned to me exceedingly. Burning to Nehemiah to see this in the people of God, exceedingly. He was angry. And listen, as, as a child of God, there is a time to be angry. You know, I think a lot of Think of a lot of Christians, I think a lot of churchgoers, they probably believe that all anger is sinful. And yes, a lot of our anger is sinful. Because a lot of our anger, it comes from a self-righteous heart. It comes from a self-centered heart. Uh, And when anger comes out of a self-righteous, self-centered heart, it is sinful in the eyes of God. When you're just angry because you were personally offended, or you're angry because you were just personally hurt, or you're, you're angry because your kids spilled milk on the kitchen floor. And I say that because I've been there. <laughs> I've sinned in that way. Or you're angry because your spouse, just, your spouse just did something that irritated you. Man, that self-centered anger is sinful. But listen, there, there, is, there is an anger that is not sinful. When anger is coming out of a a God-centered place, a a righteous God-centered anger, uh, an anger that is an anger against ungodliness or an anger against unrighteousness. Frankie Frankie Schaefer, he's the son of Francis Schaefer. He wrote a book called A Time for Anger, The Myth of Neutrality. And Frankie Schaefer says in his book, There are times in which anyone with a shred of moral principle should be profoundly angry. There are times in which anyone with a shred of moral principle should be profoundly angry. And the Bible agrees with that. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry! And do not sin. And if you stop and think about that, that's a command from God. God, God's not just saying it's okay. 
to be angry at times. No, that is a command. There are times when God would command us, be angry. Be angry. Be angry with a righteous God-centered anger. And don't sin with an unrighteous self-centered anger. And Nehemiah, man, he sees. He sees this lack of love within the people of God, and he's angry. And do you realize that most of the Bible characters who get angry, do you realize that they don't get angry usually at the people out there? They get angry at the people of God. When they see anger within the people of God, when they see hypocrisy within the people of God, when they see self-righteousness within the people of God, that's where the anger goes. And Nehemiah sees this lack of love in the people of God, and he's angry. With a God-centered, righteous anger, this is the anger of God here for his own people. Man, the first thing Nehemiah does here, he takes counsel within himself. (laughs) Nehemiah is a a wise man. Let me encourage you, um, the next time that you're angry, let me encourage you to do a couple things the next time you're angry. Shut your mouth. Take your hands away from the keyboard. (laughs) Drop the keyboard. Back away. Pause and take counsel with yourself. You want want to make sure that the anger you feel is not not a personal self-centered anger. An anger that's just cloaked in godly words. You want to make sure that it's a legitimate righteous anger in your heart at at something. A God-centered type of anger. Pause, (laughs) make sure your anger's coming from the right place, and then plot your move. Be swift to listen, James says, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Make sure it's not the wrath of man that you're feeling. Pause, take counsel with yourself, and then plot your next move. That's what Nehemiah does. We're not going to look at it in detail. We're not going to look at what Nehemiah does here, but he takes steps here. I'll just walk you through it quickly. Verses 7 to 13 say that Nehemiah then brought charges against the, the nobles and officials. He, he brought some sort of official charges against the wealthy who were doing this exploiting in Jerusalem. It says in verse 7, he held a great assembly against these people. Pause and think about that. Nehemiah hasn't stopped building here for any reason. And now he sees this lack of love within the people of God. He stops the building. He calls this assembly of all of these people and brings charges against the wealthy who are exploiting the poor. And he says, then listen, you powerful Jews. And if you figure out what he says in there, he's basically just saying, listen, you, you, powerful, you powerful Jews here. Our Jewish brothers and sisters were initially enslaved to foreigners in this land. <laughs> During the exile, those who weren't exiled, they were in this land enslaved to foreigners. And we came back here out of exile and we delivered them. We bought them out of slavery and now you are enslaving them again. We are actually going to 
buy them back again? From you? Our Jewish brothers and sisters? It's not good, Nehemiah says. He says, shouldn't you rather walk in the fear of God and, and, and obey God, it, 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 it's fine, verse 10, it's fine to lend to people money and grain. It's fine to do that. Verse 10, I'm doing it, but you must abandon this exacting of interest and give back their fields, their vineyards, their homes. Give back the money you stole from them. No more slavery, no more exploitation, no more lack of love here in our body. And his words hit the mark. Verse 12, they said, we will do as you say. So Nehemiah has them swear to it. He <laughs> calls the priests in front of all the people. Look the priests in the eye. Tell them that you will do these things. And they promise and they do it. Verse 13, then all the people said amen and praised the Lord. So Nehemiah here, he's just faced with this lack of love within this body And Nehemiah addresses it. And we should too. You know, an unchecked lack of love within our body. Bitterness between believers, unforgiveness, gossip, criticism, slander, strife can quickly fester into a disunity in the body strife, a contention within the body. And ultimately, if it goes unchecked, it will kill our disciple-making efforts. It will kill our, our building of the church. And all of a sudden, we're suddenly no longer seeking to save unbelievers, immature other believers. We're just sitting around complaining, hurt, offended for various reasons. And the powers of darkness love it. They just just love it. Satan, to keep us from making disciples, doesn't have to stir up external persecution. He can just stir up internal dissension and keep us from building the church. Man, we got to be aware. The Bible says we're not aware of Satan's schemes. We need to be aware of what he wants to do to the church. We need to be aware that Satan wants to stir up dissension. He wants to do it. He wants to do it in your home. He wants to do it in your life group. He wants to do it in our church. Stir up dissension in one form or another. He's prowling around to do it. Cause the church to come apart at the seams. So man, please be careful what you say about other believers here. And I say that to all of us, myself included. Cover one another in love. Overlook offenses. If, if you have something against someone, go to that person. Let me encourage you, and I've mentioned this many times over the years, don't go in email. Go in person. If you've got something there, you're stirred up, go in person to that person. And speak the truth to that person in love. If someone has something against you, Jesus says in Matthew 5 that you should leave your gift at the altar, and before you come and worship in another church service, you should make things right with that person. Love your neighbor as yourself. And listen, if we will diligently do that, 
as a church family. God will protect our unity and our building project of making disciples that will move forward. So that's the complaints Nehemiah heard, the steps Nehemiah took, and the final thing here, quickly, the example that Nehemiah set. After rebuking these people for their lack of love, Nehemiah takes a few verses right at the end to kind of lay out for us how he had acted very differently. So he just blasted these people for a lack of love and a lack of generosity. And at the end, he shows us he hasn't operated that way. That he's operated with a lavish love, a lavish generosity for other people. And as you work your way through here, you know what you realize? Nehemiah was one of the wealthier people in Jerusalem here. And yet Nehemiah is one of the wealthier people here. He wasn't like other people exploiting the poor. He was giving lavishly to the poor. Giving very generously to the poor. Laying his life down for them. Nehemiah was loving his neighbors very, very well. Again, we won't have time to look at it in detail. But if you go through verses 14 to 19, Nehemiah lays out some specific ways that he had loved the poor and weak. Some of the ways he'd sacrificed for them, gave generously to them, loved them. He says in verse 14 that from the time he was appointed governor, so just a couple months before this, and then for the next 12 years, during that amount of time, those 12 years, Nehemiah says that neither he nor his brothers ate the governor's food allowance. So Nehemiah, as governor over this land, Nehemiah, he he has some rights. And Nehemiah, as governor, he has a right to tax the people to cover his expenses and to pay his salary. He has a right to do that. His rightful perks as governor and other governors had done that. He says in verse 15 that the governors before him taxed the people heavily. But Nehemiah waived his rights so the people would have more money to buy food and to pay their taxes to to Persia. He says in verse 16 that he acquired no land. So he didn't take ownership from the poor when he gave out loans. He says in verse, uh, verse 17, he says 150 Men were at his table daily. Wow, that's some kind of family meal for Nehemiah. Man, think about that. Jewish officials, officials from other countries who were traveling through the Persian Empire at the time, 150 people at his table. Governors back then, they, they were expected to entertain. Uh, governors in America uh, do the same type of thing from time to time. You may not know this, but my father uh, was actually a politician. He was a, a state representative in Kansas. And I remember many times my, my father going to banquets at the governor's mansion in Topeka, Kansas. Governors entertain uh, often. And Nehemiah did it all the time back here. And governors back in Nehemiah's day, when they would entertain at these big meals, well, again, they would tax the people (laughs) to pay for the meals. I got 150 people coming over again today, and you guys are going to pay for it. But Nehemiah says there that he paid for the meals himself (laughs) out of his own pocket. 
I won't do that today. Hundred and fifty of you come over. I, I just probably won't do it. He he did it every day, paying for those things out of his own pocket. Very wealthy man, giving up his rights as governor in order that the people might benefit. He didn't steal from the poor. He gave generously to them, loving them well, a self-sacrificing love. And Nehemiah then, he finishes the chapter here. Yeah, wouldn't you know it? We've seen it all through the book so far. He turns once again very quickly to God in prayer. Look at verse 19. He says, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Nehemiah has a genuine faith in God. Believes that God rewards those who seek him and who obey him. And Nehemiah simply says, God, remember me. Remember me for what I've done here for these people. So that's the example Nehemiah set. And Nehemiah, unlike many other wealthy people here in Jerusalem at the time, he was loving his neighbors as himself. And listen, God wants us to do the same. That's one thing God asks of his people, his people back then, his people today. He wants us to love our neighbors well. Love the other people in our church family really, really, really well. Love the people outside of our church family really well. You know that's one way that people are supposed to know that we are disciples of Jesus? Jesus says in John 13, 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is critical for the people of God, a self-sacrificing, self-giving love like Nehemiah. Nehemiah is an example for us there. God put him there. He, he wants you to be like Nehemiah, so be like Nehemiah. Love your neighbor. But here's the thing. As I've mentioned several times already in the book of Nehemiah, if all we get out of this book is be like Nehemiah, we missed the point, didn't we? Because Nehemiah is not ultimately about Nehemiah. Nehemiah is ultimately about Jesus. The entire Bible is ultimately about Jesus. This is the good news story of what God has done through Jesus to save sinners and redeem a broken world. Jesus is the primary hero of the Bible and every passage points to Jesus. And how does this passage point to Jesus? Well, Nehemiah right there, he's a small picture, a small foreshadowing of Jesus. Jesus, who would come to earth 400 years after Nehemiah. (laughs) Well, Jesus, before he came to earth, when you really stop and think about it, Jesus was also a sort of governor. He had an authority over the entire world. (laughs) He owned it. He had created it and he owned it and had authority over all of it. Jesus Christ, the supreme governor over the entire universe. And Jesus, this wealthy governor, before he came to earth, do you realize that he had rights? Do you realize that Jesus had rights? He, He had a right to stay there in glory. 
<laughs> for all eternity. He had a right to stay there in glory and continue enjoying the worship of all of his angels and all of creation. Je- Jesus, he had, he had a right to enjoy those privileges in in heaven. He had a right to stay there in heaven and continue to enjoy the, the fellowship from the Father and the Holy Spirit. Jesus had a right to stay far away from this dark and fallen world filled with sinners like you and me. Think about it Jesus as the governor over all things. He had a right. With the people who had destroyed his creation through sin, he had a right to destroy us. That was his right. And Jesus gave up his rights, like Nehemiah. Philippians 2, Jesus who was in the form of God, he emptied himself. He emptied himself of his right. He emptied himself of his visible glory. And he came into this fallen world. And when he came, man, Jesus, he didn't take the form of a king, lording his authority over other people in power. He took the form of a humble servant coming up under other people in love. Jesus came to love. The infinitely wealthy governor came to love those who were weak and poor. You and me. Poor because of our sin. Too weak to get out of our sin. Ephesians 2, dead in our sin. And Jesus came to love us. Came to serve us. Mark 10, 45. Jesus, He didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to give His life on the cross. Taking our sin, our death upon Himself in order that we, through a simple faith in Him, might be forgiven and have life. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Jesus, though He was rich, He became poor in order that we who are poor, through faith in Him, might become rich. And you realize that Jesus on the cross, after He had lived this life of love for, for very weak and poor people, on the cross, He turned to the Father in prayer. Father, into Your hands, I commit my spirit. Remember for good, oh my God, all that I have done for these people. And God the Father did remember. Raised Him from the dead. Exalted Him back to the right hand in heaven. Jesus, the infinitely better Nehemiah, the wealthiest of all governors, gave up his rights, his privileges, gave up everything in love, loving his neighbors perfectly in this life. And man, if you now trust in and follow Christ today, you've received forgiveness from Christ, you've received love from Christ, then you know what Jesus says to you? Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. As I have loved you, now you turn and you love others. You love your neighbors in your church family. You love them well. Overlooking offenses like Jesus did for you. You love unbelievers outside of your church family. Love your neighbors as Jesus has loved you. 
And if we will do that, God will preserve our unity and help us to build, help us to make disciples. May God help us to love as we have been loved. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for this picture. Jesus, the better Nehemiah, much better governor, gave himself in love for his neighbors, gave lavishly, gave generously for his neighbors. Just thank you for this picture. And Father God, I pray that that love would stir our hearts to love. That that love for us, you'd open our hearts to receive it. And our hearts would be stirred to follow in the path of Christ. To love, to love well, to love lavishly. To lay down our lives as Christ has done for us. Father, help us. Lord, in all of our hearts, there's still a lack of love at times. I know it. I see it in my own heart. Lord, there's still sinful anger in our hearts. I see it in my own heart. We ask that you would mold us. You'd change us, transform us through the love of Christ. That we might go and love others and build the church of Jesus. We thank you for it, Father. In the name of Jesus, amen.